Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. In the desert hills just outside Banning, a small city 80 miles east of Los Angeles in California, Greg Culler dreamt of building a roundhouse with a pool, a place to go on the weekends where his family could watch bobcats and coyotes in the wild. On the suggestion of his architect, he built it as an octagon, so it would be easier to place the doors and windows. Surrounded by cement cinder block walls, his highest peak was 24 feet. After years of working weekends, he finished it in 1990. His wife filled their home with Indian artifacts that she'd collected over 25 years, and Greg built a garage to house his collection of antique cars. The Los Angeles Times described how on weekends they'd ride motorcycles or all-terrain vehicles, and Denise, a schoolteacher, caught snakes and tarantulas to take back to her classroom and show her students. California has always been a state plagued with wildfires and experienced some of the country's largest and deadliest wildfires on record. A big part in this is the Santa Ana winds that race down from the mountain peaks in the Mojave Desert to the Pacific Ocean below at such a high rate of speed. They can reach 97 miles per hour with gusts up to 167. The winds create low humidity and warm temperatures that dry out the underbrush, creating the perfect fuel to feed the fires. In 1998, a fire leapt across the mountain and stopped within 800 feet of Greg and Denise's home. They were one of the lucky ones. Mark Lausenheiser loved the outdoors and camping with his wife and family. He was athletic and played softball, but his lifelong passion was firefighting. He rose to the rank of captain and was stationed in Idlewild, a small community nestled in the San Jacinto mountain range. Raymond Euler was a mechanic in nearby Beaumont. He was interested in being a firefighter and spent three months training, but never completed the program. But that didn't quell his desire to be around fire. In late 2005, he began setting them, using a cigarette and matches tied together with a rubber band that he placed near dried out brush. That gave him 10 minutes to drive away and establish an alibi. But to his dismay, the fire remained small. Raymond and his girlfriend had a baby, 
that he was focused on his fires and bragged to her that he was the one setting them. He complained that they hadn't been big enough, spread far enough, or done enough damage. She was appalled and threatened to leave him if he did not stop. That gave Raymond a reality check. The thought of losing his girlfriend and child made him stop, but only for six months. On May 16, 2006, he returned to setting fires. Again, he wrapped matches around a cigarette, tied them together with a rubber band, and flipped the lighter. The lick of the flames as they struggled for air amused him. Then he drove away, and again the fire started, then slowed. His dream of seeing an orange ball explode in the sky eluded him. He tried again two weeks later. Raymond's personal life wasn't going well. His dog had bitten someone and animal control had seized it. His solution? He told his girlfriend that he set the hill on fire as a diversion to break his dog out. And he did just that. Then on June 9th, he drove to the Morongo Indian Reservation. He put a cigarette to his lips and lit it, then placed six matches on top and fled the area. The fire burned longer this time before firefighters extinguished it. Driven by his destructive need, he tried again the very next day. He lit a Marlboro cigarette and used seven matches to start the fire. Again it burned just a little longer, but not long enough. Then Raymond lost custody of one of his three daughters from a previous relationship due to his drug use. His anger swelled and his need to relieve the pressure multiplied. He had to regain control and power. That month, he set a record of eight fires, all concentrated in the San Gorgonio Pass area. He used a slingshot and launched the cigarette and matches into the brush. He was getting more proficient with each fire, First it grew to 10 acres, then up to 60. The firefighters were having a tougher time putting them out. Investigators noticed a pattern and knew the fires weren't an accident. NBC News reported that security cameras were secretly installed on utility poles in remote areas. When investigators viewed the video, they noticed the same car near 10 of the fires that had been set. They ran the license plate and discovered the car belonged to Raymond Euler. Then investigators discovered evidence to support their arson theory. At the June 9th and 10th fires, they recovered the incendiary devices used to start the fires. The cigarettes were tested for DNA, and although DNA was recovered, 
it did not match anyone in the database. Now Raymond was oblivious to the fact that investigators had retrieved DNA. He set two more fires in July. One night after setting a fire in the Marina Valley, Raymond returned home to his girlfriend, and while watching the news could see the fire had shut down the 60 freeway. Raymond proudly turned to her and announced, I did that. She was not impressed and reprimanded him. In August, he set no fires. But her words quickly faded, and in September, he tried again twice. Fires that had the potential to destroy homes and take lives. Lives like those of his girlfriend and child. But that didn't matter to Raymond. Just like fire investigator John Orr featured in Murder in 20's episode, Point of No Return, the only thing that mattered was his gratification. Raymond watched the Santa Ana winds and planned to use them to his advantage. On October 26, he waited for nightfall. Just after midnight, under the cover of darkness, he drove to the Esperanza Avenue in Cabazon, at the base of the San Jacinto Mountains. He parked, got out, and placed a marble cigarette between his sweaty lips then wrapped seven wooden matches around it, tied it with a rubber band, and set it down on some brush on the side of the road. He stood back and watched his art take shape. The Santa Ana winds were raging. The fire leapt up the dry hillside, traveling at a speed of 40 miles per hour, with gusts reaching up to 60. Flame shot up a hundred feet, as if trying to touch the stars. The temperature soared to a blistering 1,500 degrees. Raymond drove to a nearby gas station, watching the fireball race across the darkness. A truck driver stopped, and Raymond said to him, The fire is acting exactly how I thought it would. The electricity went out, the roads were pitch black, and the smoke was thick as firefighters raced to the scene. One of the first to arrive was Fire Engine 57 from the U.S. Forest Service based out of the Allendale Station, with Captain Mark Losenheiser and his crew of four, 27-year-old Jess McLean, the assistant engine operator, and firefighters, 27-year-old Jason McKay and Daniel Hoover-Nahara and Pablo Cerda, both 20. At 5 a.m., Lily Arroyo was sleeping when firefighters pounded on her door. She tried to grab her purse, but they pushed her out the door, telling her that her life was more important. In Twin Pines, Justin Conan 
watched the fire advance towards his house. His wife and children rounded up the animals and fled. Now within a hundred yards, the flames were thirty feet high, and the heat started to burn into the flesh on his face. He jumped onto his motorcycle and raced down the canyon. Numerous fire trucks responded, including fire engines 51, 52, and 56. During the night, the winds died down. At 7 a.m., Engine 57, with Captain Mark and his crew, headed up an isolated dirt road off Highway 243. They parked their engines, pulled out their hoses, and got ready to douse the flames heading towards the Octagon House. It was 8 a.m. when suddenly flames shot up the hill. The Santa Ana winds had driven the fire through the dry brush along the foothills and pushed it up into the steep canyon. Without warning, the firefighters were surrounded, trapped and overtaken by a wall of flames. There was no time to run for the pool or deploy a fire shelter. The captains from fire engines 51 and 52 heard explosions and attempted to reach Captain Mark and his crew over the radio. All they heard was the crackle and radio silence. They contacted Fire Engine 56, who also tried to reach them. Two of the fire engines drove to Engine 57's location. But the smoke was too thick and they were forced to stop. One of them got out and started to walk, then stopped dead in his tracks. A member from Fire Engine 57 lay badly burned. He proceeded up the driveway and found Captain Mark and called for emergency medical personnel and backup. They arrived to discover three more charred bodies. Jess Jason and Daniel all perished at the scene. Captain Mark and Pablo were taken to the hospital. In daylight, the winds picked up. A sea of red fire retardant and water rained down on the San Jacinto Mountains from planes and helicopters. That night, Greg and Denise watched the news in horror. They knew the fire had spread, but the news didn't specify an exact area. Then they saw it. All that remained were the cinder block walls in the shape of an octagon. And they knew they couldn't go back. Not because of what they lost, but because of what the community had lost. The fallen firefighters. Their home was now a crime scene. That evening, Mark passed away at 44. 8,000 firefighters put their lives on the line to battle the Esperanza fire. Hundreds of homes were in danger and hundreds of families were evacuated. 
John Atherton was working when he heard about the fire. He phoned home and told his wife and children to get out. Then he raced home and had only minutes to grab what he thought was important. His dog, videos of his daughters, and his tax papers. The fire continued to spread. The guardrails along Highway 243 melted in the intense heat. 500 homes were threatened by the fire that has scorched 24,000 acres in one day. On Friday, the winds died down and investigators interviewed Raymond. He told them that he was at a casino when the fire started and that he'd stopped at a Shell gas station. When asked for a DNA sample, he voluntarily provided one. By Saturday, firefighters had the blaze 60% contained. 40,000 acres now stood blackened and charred, with 27 structures destroyed. Jason's mother, Bonnie, had a message for the arsonist. She told the press that she didn't believe they knew things were going to turn out the way that they did, and said, don't let the remorse eat you alive. But Raymond likely didn't feel an ounce of remorse. Meanwhile, forensic investigators got a match to the DNA found at the fires in June. It was a match to Raymond. Authorities searched his house and car, where they seized a gas can, cigarette butts, latex gloves, and a partially burned slingshot. Investigators poured through video surveillance at the casino and the gas station, and neither supported Raymond's alibi. Then the incendiary device was recovered from the Esperanza fire. The cigarette matches a rubber band with the same type used in the June fires. The fires where Raymond's DNA was found. The California Department of Forestry, the FBI, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms were all working on the case. By Tuesday, October 31st, five days after it began, the fire was contained. That same day, Pablo succumbed to his injuries, and 37-year-old Raymond was arrested and charged. Wildfire Today listed the individual charges totaling 45 counts, including 5 counts of first-degree murder, 20 counts of arson, and 17 counts of using an incendiary device. Raymond pled not guilty. His trial began in January 2009, a little more than three years after the Esperanza fire. More than a dozen fire personnel sat in the courtroom behind the families of their fallen comrades. Prosecutors presented photographs of the five firefighters. The New York Times described the shock Mrs. Ayola felt at the sight of her son Daniel. She had been told he died from smoke inhalation, but the photograph 
told a much more disturbing end. The only spot on his charred body where the color of his flesh was visible was the tip of his nose. She stated, I will remember that forever. After a month of testimony, the four men and eight women on the jury found Raymond guilty on 42 of the 45 charges, but were deadlocked on three small arson fires. At his sentencing, Jess McLean's brother Josh told the judge, He stole something from us that he cannot repay. I hope, sir, that you sentence him to die for what he did to my brother, because that is justice. The judge granted his wish and told Raymond he was sentenced to death and that his penalty was to be served within the walls of San Quentin Prison. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Rodney Halbauer. He was narcissistic and mean and was serving time by the age of 15. In 1975, he committed a violent assault, but was released on bail until his trial. He used that time to go on a killing spree that terrorized two states. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.